Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty, The Sons of a Friendship. In 1660, Sachem Massasoit died. He had led with his personal loyalty of his people. He had made strong bronze of friendship with the leaders of Plymouth. But the friendship between Massasoit and Plymouth's leaders was a personal arrangement. Now Edward Winslow's son would be dealing with Massasoit's sons, and they didn't have the same personal relationships that bonded them together. In the mid-1650s, European fashion had moved away from furs. This left land as the sole economic interest when trading with natives. Over the decades, the native nations had adopted many English tools and muskets. When the English shifted from buying furs, a somewhat replenishing resource, to only wanting to purchase land, a finite resource, the wealth of the local native nations slowly decreased as they continued to purchase English goods like tools in exchange for land. Tensions and distrust between the children of Massasoit and the second generation of leaders of New England would now grow without the bonds and memory of overcoming mutual hardships together. In 1662, the Bay Courts would summon Sachem Alexander, Massasoit's eldest son, for selling lands to Rhode Island. The Bay was offended and looking for an explanation to why they didn't get a right of refusal on those land deals. They thought each other as long friends, and this sale showed different. When Sachem Alexander failed to show up to court, Edward Winslow Jr. was sent with a militia to escort Sachem Alexander to court. On the travel to Boston, Sachem Alexander, a seemingly healthy man, would die inexplicably. The Wampanoag nation saw this as highly suspicious, and rumors of a poisoning now swirled. Philip, Massasoit's second son, would now become Sachem of the Wampanoag. By 1667, rumors were swirling in the United Colonies that the Wampanoag had considered joining the French in Quebec or the Dutch in the New Netherlands in war, or at least very favorable cooperation against the English. A few years later, in 1671, an informant told Bay officials that the Wampanoag and Narragansett were preparing for war. This could only mean against the English. Philip agreed to meet and discuss these rumors at Taunton, Massachusetts, where he agreed, under pressure, to having planned an attack on the English, and he agreed to hand over all of the Wampanoag's weapons as a sign of peace, even immediately handing over his delegation's weapons. He was deep within the territory of the bay. Philip agreed to whatever allowed him to leave with his body whole and would avoid potential violence against any in his delegation. But he had no intention of handing over his people's weapons to the bay. The next four years was filled with a Cold War mentality between the Wampanoag and the United Colonies. Relations had clearly soured, but no one wanted to make the first move of hostilities. Each side increasingly stockpiled muskets and powder. Powder had to be imported from Europe until the first refinery in North America was built in 1675. Then, in June of 1675, the murder of John Sassaman put events into motion. John Sassaman was a native. He had fought with the English in the Pequot War, then studied at Harvard and spent much of his time teaching natives Christianity. He had returned to the Wampanoag Nation to become an advisor to Sachem Alexander. He was there when Sachem Alexander died in English custody, after which he became Sachem Phillips' advisor. Sassaman was a vocal supporter of the English ways and Christianity. Sassaman was with Philip's delegation in Trondheim, 
when Sachem Philip was forced into a humiliating concessions under the Trontan Agreement. Sassaman was found in an icy pond, dead. At first, this was thought to perhaps be a winter accident, maybe the ice broke. But a Christian native came forward and testified that he saw three warriors kill Sassaman. Tobias, one of Philip's counselors, Tobias's son, Wampacon, and Tobias's other son, Metatrunamo. The three were arrested and accused in Plymouth of laying violent hands upon Sassaman. This court case was high tension and drama, beyond just a simple murder case. It had the weight of two cultures, political distrust, and grievances. Plymouth officials would claim fairness because both English and natives formed the jury, natives from other nations. The three were quickly convicted of murder and sentenced to death. All three were hung together, but Wampaquan's rope broke. He was offered a reprieve in return for his testimony about the murders. Wampaquan took this offer and confessed that they, they had really killed Sassaman. It was known that the Puritans offered better deals if one confessed and submitted to their will. This was, after all, his only hope. After a month's reprieve and the confession, the Puritans set up a firing squad and shot Wapakwan to death. Governor Easton of Rhode Island figured that, he being a third party, he could offer peace through arbitration with the United Colonies. In response to this, Sachem Philip offered a list of grievances. He reminded Easton that when the English came to New England, Massasoit was a great man and the Wampanoag were a great nation. The English were but little children. It was the Wampanoag that had protected them from other natives, shown them how to plant, and let them have a hundred times the land that the Wampanoag were now allowed to have as their own. That Alexander had been miserably arrested and drugged to court as if he was no honorable sachem, where he died in English custody. And it was just seen in court that if 20 honest natives had testified that an Englishman had done them wrong, it was as if nothing had happened. And if but one of English's worst people testified, it was as if a king had given an edict of the events. That when their sachem sold land, the English would say that it was more than agreed to. And a writing must be proven against those settlers that encroached upon their lands. Why must we prove in the English eyes, that our own lands are our own lands. That the sale of lands would often happen by first getting sachems drunk before bargaining land agreements, which everyone would consider cheating and theft. And that English courts refused to make English farmers keep their cattle in their own lands, ordering no damages from cattle roaming and spoiling native crops. The courts had the audacity to blame the natives for not fencing their own farms. There is but scattered details about Philip personally. Much has been said about him in later generations. In the 19th century, he was a noble savage fighting for native rights. In the 20th century, a victim of colonialization. The truth is we know very little. He appears and then disappears in the records that we have. What we know is that he started to try to build a coalition to fight the English, pushed by the expansion of English society into native society. This expansion broke down the communal living and forced them into an alien world of commodities, entrepreneurial individualism, where the best and most talented could sell their labor to European markets, gaining for themselves affluence equal to their talent, but draining the affluence of the native communities. Faced with this cultural prisoner's dilemma, where he could not get his own people to turn away from individual incentives of the European culture, where growing of food was now dependent on European metal tools, where war was dependent on European muskets. Trade was within the supply chains of faraway European markets. 
The only way for the Wampanoag to return to the prior generation's world of communal living was to repel the English back into the ocean. But this idea split the native nations of New England. Sachem Awashanks of the Sakonic was split by a desire to side with the English and the prosperity that that had brought, or side with her traditionist warriors who wanted to join Sachem Phillips' crusade. Sachem Waitamo of the Pekasit reported that most of her people had already gone to Philip, engaging in his war dances against her will. She feared that there would be a devastating war with the English, and she feared and recalled what had happened to other nations that were defeated by the English in war. In the Connecticut River Valley, both the Noatok and the Agawam remained neutral. But in the fog of war, English militias accidentally attacked them and forced them out of neutrality. Many nations were in this political maze between the English and Sachem Philip, not knowing what to do and how to find a path out for their people. As for the United Colonies, although their politics had always concerned itself with the specter of the Grand Native Coalition, in practicality, these were just political slogans and fear mongers. There was no English plan to take the native lands through war. There was no unified defensive plan inside the United Colonies. The English forts were barely armed, hardly staffed, and had no coordination with other forts. It would take overwhelming losses of property and life in the war to forge any sort of cooperation between the different English colonies. And the King Philip War, by percent of casualties to population, would become the deadliest war in American history. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.